Are you ready to bridge the gap in our current healthcare system and really help people that struggle with flexibility, mobility, and weakness? Hi, I'm Kim Narker, and welcome to Rehab to Wellness Boss Podcast, a business owner successful startup podcast where I help you start, build, and grow your wellness business. Join me as I reveal real secrets to helping rehab professionals build a successful, proven wellness program that keeps their community away from reactive care. Hey, hey, everybody. Thanks. And welcome back to Rehab to Wellness Boss Podcast. Today in the house, we have got Will Butler. Now, most of you know Will Butler as the financial guru in the PT section. For those of you that don't, you need to look him up. But he is in the house today. We're going to be talking about financials, business, startup, financials, and other things in relation to finances and how you can take the little bit that you have and expand on it and grow to help your family if you're starting a business and to also help your company as you grow so that you personally grow financially in your business. So without further ado, Will, welcome. Welcome to the show. Hey, Kim. Welcome. I appreciate you. I shouldn't say welcome to you. I should say appreciate the welcome. That's the words that I was missing. But no, this is great. I'm looking forward to this opportunity to have a discussion. Frankly, I mean, I hope my hope is, is that people walk away with some key bits and some actionable things. But then also at the same time, we know kind of being with our careers as exercise professionals, we know that, you know, success is oftentimes a series of reps, right? It's not one single treatment or one single exercise that solves everything. So if, at the very least, I hope this is a refresher and a reminder. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about your backstory. Why are you a PT and in finance? Oh, great questions. So who doesn't like talking about themselves? So this is, I appreciate the lead in, handing the mic right back. So I ended up in financial services. How did I end up there? And I'll kind of reverse engineer that. So I ended up in healthcare because my family had a very negative experience with like money people, money business people. And it happened with the premature passing of my father. And so the kind of the context and the environment around that and the reason why, I mean, it's tragic. Loss is tragic at any time under any circumstances, expected or unexpected, even if it's something that was welcomed or probably the best outcome. So even in the best of circumstances, it's awful. And my circumstances, particularly, I took a lot of now when I reflect on it, a lot of interesting things happen. And so for context, my dad had just started a business supporting the construction industry. His industry was laser equipment and laser guided equipment. And it, what it was to do is to create the grading on the roads or also say like in an industrial complex when you had to lay a slab, like there's certain tolerances, like you just don't make it level. And even if you do, how do you make sure it is? And so he created the equipment. He didn't create it. He wasn't the inventor he distributed the equipment that would allow for that to happen. So pretty fundamental in large scale construction. So that was the business that he had. What was going on at the time is he had had a business partner who helped and was in there to support financially. And so I'll carry that forward and think about because sometimes people wonder, should I go into business? And if I do, what should I consider? So maybe I'll talk a little bit about that in high level. But 
Anyway, the point is, is he was several years ahead of the projections that he'd given to the bank, which means business had been good. Things were great in my family because business was great. Family was great. My mom was excited. My dad was excited. Things were going well. I was getting ready to have a a new sibling, which I would say admittedly was something I was grappling with a little bit because I was 17 at the time. And now all of a sudden my parents are getting ready to have another kid. I was like, this is weird. I have friends who are unexpectedly having children. And now my parents are unexpectedly having children. And this is kind of a weird thing, like thought we were done. So anyway, that was what was going on around the time. And then one day my dad went out for a bike ride because that was his hobby and mode of exercise of choice. And he never made it back from that ride. He passed away of a lethal arrhythmia. And it was kind of at that moment where what happens in that moment is there's in relationship to finances is that's when that's an executing event of the financial plan, meaning whatever is supposed to happen in those types of things is now put into play and is now executed. So traditionally what would happen is my mom would have gone and made a life insurance claim. You know, you would have had these accounts and these accounts would have transferred to beneficiaries. You know, you would have had all these things that proceed in legal documentation. Like that's what's supposed to happen. And what happened in my family circumstance, that isn't what happened. My mom first went to the life insurance company and they said, I don't know why you, you don't actually have policies enforced with us. I know that you applied, but those aren't enforced. I'm not sure who told you those were there. Well, who is responsible for that was the person who provided business benefits to my dad. And he said, Pat, you've got life insurance now through these benefits. You don't need to worry about continuing to pay premiums. And this guy wasn't a personal financial planner. He did it to support businesses. And he was speaking from a group's benefit perspective. So right there was kind of like a first experience of someone talking out of pocket, you know, and trying to tell the business owner, my dad, what he wanted to hear instead of doing and saying the right things, which would be, hey, until these policies go in force, keep your other policies and we can figure that out later. But anyway, so my mom went to make the claim. Policies weren't in force. That's problematic because my dad put anything and everything into the efforts of starting that business, which is very common. Mm -hmm. I'm certain that you have a lot of listeners here who are like, we're all in on this business. And I think that there's something to that. And I think people should have that kind of dedication and drive in getting a business off the ground. But I think probably number one takeaway that I would say, this is a great bullet point, is really consider what the needs are of those that you're taking care of obviously food and water and shelter. But then the question is, is what provides for those needs? If it's family, if it's parents, if it's friends, if it's community, whatever it is, whoever is dependent on you and your income, what happens if all of a sudden there's a void? And then I would create plans around that so that that's taken care of. First and foremost, you know, my parents didn't have a complete, uh, they had a will, but was it updated? I don't remember. I don't know. I was 17. I didn't get into that. But those are the types of things that owners should be looking at. What happens if something happens? Does the business dissolve? Is your partner going to continue the business? Who knows? But in my experience in being 17, I went through this. And at first, I was very angry. I was like, well, why would this person do this to my family? Then I got a little bit older. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I'd been exposed to stoicism in one of my psychology classes. I don't know what it is. But then I started to get very angry at my dad. You told everybody the greatest thing that you had ever achieved in life was this family. And you put us in a situation to leave us exposed when life happens. And then eventually I started to realize, you know, all adults are kids who just kept getting older. You know, we just live and we exist and 
we, for the most part, try our best based upon what we know. And the problem was, is my dad had financial blind spots that led him to be maybe a little foolhardy and a little ignorant. And, you know, ignorance isn't bliss, it's dangerous, especially for a business owner. As an employed person, a lot of the significant substantial financial stuffs is being taken care of and shouldered by the owner. But when it falls on your shoulders, you now are responsible for a great many more things. And so I ended up in physical therapy because of such a nasty experience with business and business stuff, which how ironic is that, Kim, ending up in physical therapy, not thinking that I was getting into business, like healthcare is business, right? And I ended up in physical therapy school because I I grew up watching MacGyver and I thought, well, if MacGyver can make something out of nothing, how cool would it be to teach people to take their bodies and become and to figure it out with, without possible interventions of, you know, medications and surgeries and these types of things. I ended up in financial services because I was in clinical practice, spending more time wondering about my financial life, specifically loans and benefits and those types of things when I should have been connecting with patients. And one day a friend of mine, his name is Jeff said, first of all, we'll quit bitching about your problems. I'm tired of hearing them, which kind of shocked me a little bit, but I have a tendency to perseverate. And he said, why don't you ask me for help? Well, it turns out he's a financial advisor, which means he was either a really bad one because he never approached me or I was a really bad friend and never asked him what he did. Regardless, we went through and started working on that process. And he basically said, you know, Will, this feels a lot like what you do as a physical therapist, but in lieu of massage and exercise, you're, we'd be using, you know, investment accounts, insurance accounts, these different types of balances. And really a lot of the questions that we answer, you ask in patient interviews, I don't know, I really think you should consider doing this for clinicians. And so that was kind of the logic bridge that he used. But then as far as what supported it and gave it the emotional drive, and he brought up, he says, you know, I'm not trying to like, manipulate or cause anything or bring up any sore subjects. But you know, with what happened to your dad, if he had had a conversation with, you know, an advisor sooner rather than later, maybe their situation wouldn't be this way. And so that really emotionally resonated. And so that's how I ended up in financial services is I took that PT skill set of patient interview and connection and relation, and then family experience and kind of lateralized and repurposed that skill set here. So that's what I do now is I work with clinicians and families to you know, to make plans while things are good so that when things are good, they can be great. Or when things go awry, there's, there's solution and there's plan in place. Love it. So I'm going to take what you said there. And I think this podcast should be called financial blind spots Yeah, because there are very, we have a lot of listeners on the podcast right now. And there are three different types. One is a practice owner that has an established practice with a lot of clinicians and a lot of clients and they have financial blind spots. And then we have solo practitioners that are not making financial, they're not making meeting revenue goals that they want to meet. So they're considering adding wellness as an option to their practice. And then we have a solo entrepreneur that is burnout, aggravated, high student debt, and thinks their solution is to open a business. So we're going to talk about those three today and let you kind of tell us what their financial blind spots are. How does that sound to you? (laughs) That sounds good. And I'll say, I'm sure I'm going to give the typical PT answer, but well, it depends, you know, (laughs) because of, uh, 
you know, what do they always put at the bottom of any financial advertisement? They say like, you know, this is education only. None of this is actual advice given on your specific situation, whatever that stuff is. But yeah, I say we walk through that. I think that would be great. Okay. So let's look at a a practice owner that has a, either a cash or an in-network practice. It doesn't matter the practice model. You have employees that you employ. You have your family and you that you have to provide for with this business and declining reimbursements or struggles in closing the sale of a cash business lead you with very little money at the end of the day to be able to put towards things like financial goals. What advice would you give this practice owner that has a little bit coming in, but there's not a whole lot? What kind of blind spots do you see typically in this type of owner? And then what do they, what do you feel like you can bring to them as a tip? Yeah, I'm going to take a little liberty with the question because I think there's certain things on initial advice that I would give to that specific avatar or that specific person. And I would say really does still apply to all three. And maybe that's what I'll do is maybe slowly build from the bottom and then eventually we'll see individual peaks rise based upon where they are. So I think first and foremost is a moment of reflection and think about the things that you're afraid of, which sounds very general and very specific. But sometimes what I've found that happens in each of these three models is life and time or whatever it is, is moving so fast. And just like driving in a car, sometimes you're moving so fast, you don't even see what you just drove by, right? Like, and you might have a very pressing need, but you might miss it. For some reason, the first thing I thought of was, you know, if I've been driving and all of a sudden my leg starts to shake and my bladder says, hey, Will, you better find somewhere to stop. Maybe just because I was driving so fast, I actually missed the most convenient exit. And all of a sudden I have to refocus or, or change my, you know, vision. And so, and that the first thing that I would figure out is like, who's dependent upon me besides myself? And then start to ask yourself, like, the, I think the big question is, is if I get hit by a bus today, not this specific, but if something happens to me today, what happens to what I'm responsible for? And so in the case of the owner, the experienced owner that you're talking about, that person now has employees. Are they clinicians? Are they administrative? Are they support staff? Are they part of the sales staff? What are their individual needs? And in that, what then makes that different, we can get into in a second, but okay, cool. And then my family, specifically in my family, what would be needed there? Are are we in a spot financially to where we would be at risk of losing the house? Okay, what's the solution there? How do we solve? And I think starting with those types of things, and that's a simple practice that I think all three could start with is if something happens to me, and it's terminal. You know, if I'm a light bulb and the filament burns out, what needs to light the way? Who needs light? You know, and for those types of things, typically the solution is going to end in the word insurance because the cost is substantial enough that you can't afford to replace it in the moment. But again, practice owner established and those types of things. All right, what happens to me? But that practice owner where a complication emerges is now you have what happens to the business? You need to right. solve for that. Yep. The, is your, do you live in a state where your partner could actually continue it? Like your and, and a lot of these practice owners, let's talk about not having a partner that they're just a practice owner. There's nobody to fall to. So what happens with the business in that regard? Great. Yeah, exactly. So then you have to look at kind of the way your state, you, it operates at a state level and kind of what state laws look like. So this might be where a relationship with a business attorney is important, where you figure out, 
in this case, if you're here and you have a family, is it possible for your spouse to take over the business in your state? If it is, the question is, is would they want to? Or would can they? Want they? To? Exactly. Can they and would they want to? And if the answers are no to that, well, then how do you sell the business? What are the provisions there? What is the cost stru- price structure? How would you, you know, price that? How would you sell that? Who would sell that? Do you have somebody who could broker it? So you start working on this kind of needs-based analysis. And then the question is, is if they don't want to be involved in it and you were to sell it, then how long does the business take to sell? And would that, is that possible timeline? Is it long enough? Is it, can your family survive to that? Can you get that business sold before? So then it's like, if the answers are no, and that even just listing that out sounded really complicated. Then the question is, is the solution there is life insurance. Do I have life insurance? And is it an adequate amount of life insurance for what needs to happen? And this is where people say, well, what is an adequate amount of life insurance? You can find textbook things. You can find algorithms online. The reality is, is that the most specific answer is there's no right or wrong amount of insurance until you define what you need the insurance to do, which is why I think people like rule of thumb where they'll say, well, you know, it's a multiple. It's, you know, 10 to 15 times the annual annual income, whatever. Like you can do that. 15 to 20, you can see all over the spectrum and how it's written. The reality is for more precise response, it's what needs to happen. Is there a mortgage note? All right. How much would it take to solve for that? Are there education needs of children? All right. What's the salary replacement that's necessary? Then the question is, how long would I want to replace that salary? And you can put objective numbers to each of those things. And this is where, you know, maybe an owner feels overwhelmed and things feel stretched. This might be a great time to tap a financial professional on the shoulder and say, hey, help me walk through this problem so I can come to an answer. Or frankly, something's better than nothing. You can hop onto a website, punch in a number and get something. It's always better to have something than nothing. But I would say if you're an owner and you're established and you can create time to solve for this, I would say it behooves you to walk through and to really author what you want to happen. Because I've definitely seen it and you see it all the time, especially on GoFundMe's, you know, it starts out with the opening line of we never could have planned for this, or we never could have prepared for this, or we never would have expected this. Emotionally, totally true. A lot of times financially, it can be the opposite. And so while I love the idea of GoFundMe, and I think it's fantastic, and I contribute to a great many of them, and who knows, maybe someday I end up in a situation where somebody makes one on my behalf, right? Especially if something happens to me and my dog, I just would be beside myself. But the point is, is in this situation, you can kind of create that, you can author that process, and then you can hem all the process in legal work so that you're not putting that on the shoulders of the surviving spouse. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's something that the experienced owner should have into play. Then the question is, in what you mentioned, well, if you have staff, would one of them want to take the business over? But then the question is, is, could they take the business over? Because they would need to buy it out. Well, do they have the money to do that? So the or business, do they have the skill set? I mean, do they have the skill set or could you create? So then within that business, you can buy a, a life insurance policy that the business can have on you, the owner, which then could provide somebody the money, the capital to go find somebody to run it or to be able to fund it. If you have that rock star employee who you're like, this person could do it. They are who enables me to go take a vacation when I need to reset. That's great that they have the skill set, but do they have the financial wherewithal to do that? 
Well, you can create that funding opportunity if you take the time to do that. The legal professional can help write up the documents. You can get the insurance policy to be able to do that. Like you can do those things if you allow yourself as the business owner permission to schedule time to work on it. You're allowed to do that. That's what I would say are probably something that would be important for that owner. For that solopreneur who's just trying to start and to get going, you're going to be running on a much more lean operation. And I think the still the same initial question is, is, is there anybody relying upon me if something happens? And if you're a solopreneur, odds are the business is dissolved. Odds are you, it's, you don't have a book of business that you could actually sell for anything. Like it's just different because it's just kind of new. Well, in that case, the question is, is, do I have a spouse and do they need something from me? You can sometimes get adequate amount of life insurance for, I don't know, 20, 30 bucks a month, depending on age and health. And it could range a lot higher. It could be a little bit lower. The point is, have an answer to that question. And Great. In the middle- I love that. Yeah, I love that. Guys, write this down. So we've gone from that practice owner who has clinical staff, has a large business, whether it's in network, out of network, cash based practice, and you have to find your blind spots are your business. Your blind spots are your staff covered. Do they have policies for their families? And then do you have policies for your family? So when you're talking about finance, Will is telling us that life insurance is needed for all of those scenarios. And as me as a practice owner, you just don't consider that. So definitely want to look at those three areas. Business, do you have coverage for your business if something happens to you? Family, do you have coverage for your family if something happens to you? And then staff, do you have coverage for your staff? You know, do they have coverage for their family, I guess is what I'm saying. But besides life insurance, what other financial blind spots does a bigger business owner have? Like other things that you can do, investments and things like that. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I see that people look ahead to in especially earlier stages of business that they so quickly want to be able to retain and reward their employees that they think about it from a perspective of, well, we need to give them a retirement account. We need to give them these things. Maybe, but if your business isn't healthy and can't perpetuate, and if there's no solution where if something happens to you, then what good's their 401k? And not only that, that's not first and foremost in your new hire's mind all of the time. Some of them they are, and they can go to a bigger company. But my employees, I just offer to attach them to a financial advisor and then let them prepare their own life because they know what they want their future to look like. You don't have to provide that as an employer. Yeah. And sometimes they don't even know. And what we're ultimately talking about is bare bones essential. What are some of the critical things? It's very like a lot of times people talk about, you know, the balance between needs and wants. I think a lot of what we're talking about in today's podcast are what are the things that are needed, right? right? Like the other question is, is the other thing is, do you have solutions for disability? What if you get hurt and you can't practice or you can't operate your business for a defined period of time? Well, this is where the advice of emergency funds comes into place. I would argue if you're starting a practice as a solopreneur, You shouldn't worry about investing in markets. You should worry about saving cash because they're going to become times where sometimes it's not just a revenue issue. Sometimes it's not, well, I don't have enough patient and clients. Sometimes it's I'm injured and I can't actually serve these people. What's going to replace my income? Right. You know, sometimes it's the person looking to add services. They're worried about all some of these fringe things. Do you have enough cash in reserve to be able to do that? 
you know, and sometimes this is where people are quick to say, well, you, what if you have too much cash? I wouldn't even worry about that. I am relieved and I breathe a sigh of relief when I talk to a business owner. I'm like, I'm not sure I have enough money. And we look at their accounts and they've got, you know, six months, an easy six months worth of cash saved up. You know, at a certain point, you know, you start to lose financial efficiency. But I almost think that that's an entirely different conversation for what we're talking about today. Yeah. I think what we're talking about is what do you need? What are the needs? What's your basic needs if you're in this, if you've got a larger scale business and you have your family, your business and your staff, what are your financial needs right now. And that's the math. You know, we were talking before this about all the things that business people don't consider that a business owner has to, and it's costs. Like it's absolutely within your control as an owner to sit down and figure out what does it take to run my business on a month to month basis. And you can see what that bottom line number is. Multiply that number by six and you should have that in reserves. Do you always hold that in cash in reserves? I would say the more established and more predictable the business becomes, I think having a certain amount of cash is important and eventually you would factor in goals and possible equipment needs. But over time, one of the luxuries that it's afforded to a smart business owner is the ability to hold that money in other accounts, which are accounts that you've alluded to and we talked about before, which could be investment accounts on behalf of the business. It could be other different types of policies. There's other places It could be real estate. You can start to store the money in different areas when you have the money and you have the cash flow that's predictable. But I think initially and to start, you got to have the emergency fund. What happens if I can't work for a defined period of time or I can't bring cash in, whether it's three months, six months, et cetera, have that number, that box checked. Then you have to ask yourself, you know, this starts, this, this question typically ends in another, a different type of an insurance policy what if I can't practice or operate the business for three months or more, six months or more? What if it's years? Then the question is, again, comes down to legal work. Who runs the business? How much do we fund it? How do we fund it? You know, and this is possible where that established practice owner can work with kind of a business insurance person and figure out ways to get overhead expenses covered potentially, including salary, you know, because you need to solve for that. You know, how integral are you to the business? Are you in patient and client care day in and day out? Okay, well, if you can't do that, then what happens? You know, volume and revenue are going to go down. Absolutely. So then you can have policies in place for that stopgap. Is that good advice for a solopreneur? No, because your revenues are likely so erratic. First of all, you probably can't get insured. Second of all, you probably can't afford it. And then for the next person who's maybe in the middle tier where they're more in their business, and not 100% on their business, which is kind of where that when you're Solo talking about established. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you're when you're here and maybe you've got some contracted employees, maybe you're getting ready to bring somebody on W2, you still might be in that place where it's like what protects the revenue. And that's kind of the next tier and the next line. And I think those are maybe some of the blind spots because early on there's so much focus on hey, we got to get there, we got to get there, we got to get there and that's that driving on the highway. That's what blurs some of these stops, right? That's what blurs my restroom stop as I'm driving too fast. I haven't had a chance to chart it, you know? And so I think that those are kind of areas that people for sure kind of across that spectrum should be looking. And I kind of hate that it all ends, that a lot of it ends in the word insurance, but at the same time, it's foundational and it's what solves for the what ifs. 
So three things they need to look at, but at bottom line is they need to start looking at insurance and then they need to look at disability and then yep. cash flow in the bank. Yep, exactly right. Because then, then what happens is then you then you earn the right then you uh, then you earn the right to look into magnifying the efforts of the business. You know, now you get to figure out, all right, do I take distributions? How large of distributions? Or now is when it's you get to start planning the trips, you know, the different types of things. You can grow when you have the security. Exactly. And I think people are quick to sprint through the security. As well, it's also easy to become overinsured. The point is to develop relationships with somebody who you can have a conversation with and that you can also create some measures and systems to figure out, am I protected adequately? I think that's where sometimes you miss that is people don't. And sometimes what happens in that other column you were talking about where whether in network or out of network, they're but well-established, even if there's thin margin, there's security because it's predictable. Sometimes those owners just haven't even gone back and done an audit of what they might already have in place. I've sat back and looked at things or even operating agreements. It's not a physical therapy business, but I do know of some businesses where, you know, they audited their operating agreement, which had some valuation measures in it. And if that owner had dropped dead, that would have been enacted in the, the business was doing multiple seven figures of revenue. But in the operating agreement, if they had to sell the business, somebody could have bought it for hundreds of thousands of dollars because the formula was were outdated you know, in the execution of the agreement. So like there are certain things that collect dust that need to be dusted off and reapproached. I think when you're in that position and things feel kind of automatic. Yeah, I think that's good advice for that bigger business. So let's talk about a solo practice owner. So you're the solo person in your business. You are the breadwinner. You're working in the business. You're working on the business. The business Everything about it is just yeah. you. Kind of what are those blind spots and what do they need to look at? I think the big thing is, is they're too quick to worry about putting money in other markets. And they just, I think they need to spend more time saving money and revenues. Because and a lot of owners, a Profit First, that's a book that a lot of people out there are doing. And they're trying to figure out those splits into the different accounts how much do you think this solo practice owner should be putting aside? Should there be a percentage they should thinking about? They should be thinking about. I mean, hard and fast percentages. I'm slow to to give and to dedicate because situations vary. But I think this is a great time to kind of review. And this is where, like you said, you look at your. You can figure out what your estimated taxes are going to be. You know, you can have an accounting professional be able to help you figure that out. But if you're, you need to be saving money for taxes. You need to be saving money just to have it. And I would say working through the profit first book, it does give some good general rules of thumb. I just think it's a little bit difficult with your early therapy business or wellness business. It's just difficult to have a hard, fast number. And when I think early, I'm thinking of stuff less than a year, maybe trickling into two. I mean, if all you did was held on to all your cash and you at least had it here in the business, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right, And one of the biggest reasons why is you can always carve off chunks. The problem that they get into is they're quick to let it in and it comes in and they fight to bring it in, but they're quick to let it out. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have to have this piece of equipment. I have to get this thing. I have to, they start to try to migrate lifestyle. And I think one of the things that's lost and one of the blind spots is being conservative with your money is like people will downplay that and there's nothing sexy about it. But I'm telling you, it's better to have cash in the hand than to be looking for it when you need it. 
I agree. It, and you know what? I think we're probably the practice owners are probably the worst and their pockets are open quicker than I had my this was my transition year that I took my office supplies and I delegated that to my office manager. So she orders office supplies. And when I look back at my budget, she is far better at spending a lot <laughs> less money than I ever was. <laughs> yeah, there's certain things you got to get out of your hand and you got to delegate, right? And the other thing that I think is maybe a little bit of a blind spot, and this isn't me advocating that you should run everything up on credit, but I think as you, especially as you're having more predictable revenue flows, you should go in and you can talk local. You can always look online. I'm a big fan of uh, face-to-face, but go talk to your local banks and see what it takes for you to get a line of credit and figure out ways to expand that. Because you don't have to use it. And usually, if anything, if there's any fees, which a lot of times there aren't, or if they're negligible at best, create yourself a buffer. If I have, I've talked to some people and they're like, well, I don't have enough cash to even really save. I'm not even taking a paycheck. And, this and, that. and, they, and they kind of start creating these barriers around themselves. Fine. What I'm telling you is to create some stability in case you need it. You know, So go see if there's a line of credit accessible. I know it can solve lots of problems being able to open up and to create that opportunity there. And it would be a real tragedy to have to borrow money from family, friends, or other ways to like be as self-sufficient as possible, as early as possible. And I think having an open line of credit, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a great advice. So I would say that's a blind spot. I think owners across the spectrum, I think that works great. Solopreneur, the person who's starting to grow and expand a little bit. And then also maybe we would say, the experienced owner. Absolutely. Lines of credit can be great. So what about your new practice owner? So I'm getting a lot of new practice owners out there and they're already starting. There's nothing wrong guys with starting your practice with very little money. There's nothing wrong with that. However, there are a lot of blind spots that go into that because going from a clinician to a business owner, there is going to be a financial exchange. At some point, you're going to lose money and you've got to figure that out. But what advice and what blind spots does a new practice owner typically have, Will? I think, and one of the things that like Will Boyd and Alex Engar have been doing really well lately is getting owners to look at their financials and kind of their burn rates and to really audit like, okay, we're bringing in revenues. Where is it going? And are we seeing enough profit margin within that. And I think one of the reasons it's also important is, is I notice I'll talk to people as they're just getting ready to start a practice, a lot of it because they're nervous. And I think I more so just cheerleading that like, go get after it, go give it a rip. And then the next phase transitioning into that, sometimes it's silent because margins are often, it's not uncommon for them to be upside down. But then what happens is then they get to a point where they're like, whoa, I've got cash in the bank. This is cool. In my business account, and then you ask them their numbers and like, well, how much do you need in here? You know, we try to figure out their burn rate because then eventually what happens is people will come to me and they say, well, now I want to plan with this. Now I want to do something. I want to invest it. I'm like, well, how much do you need on hand? Well, I don't know. Well, what's your overhead? I don't, I don't exactly know. Well, what are you paying out to employees and to staff? Well, I'm not entirely sure. Like what percentage of, re- like they don't, they just go. And that's great because that's what gets it going. But I would say a blind spot is comfort with your numbers. You got to know your numbers. Write that down. You have to. So I have some new owners and it's funny. I ask them those questions. And one of my questions is, how, what were your sales this week? Oh, well, I think it was this and this. I mean, if you're a new practice owner, guys, you know what you sold this week. 
write it down. You have to keep a record. You shouldn't, if you had four customers and you closed two of them and you sold two four packs, you know what your four packs cost. It's not embarrassing to know your numbers and you need to know these numbers because this is just basic foundations of business ownership. Yeah. And the other thing that I would say is um, not necessarily a blind spot, but I would say maybe word of advice is to work on divorcing yourself, your emotional self from like your financial numbers. Like if it motivates you and it's serving you, great. But if it's an embarrassment point, you got to figure out a way to divorce and to separate those things. Great, um, great it, word of wisdom there because it, it just because absolutely. Well, I think we have to just circle that, underline it, put exclamation points beside that. Nothing that you do in your business is a failure. It's all a learning experience. Well, and the big thing is, is what will happen is people start to reflect on it and they start to identify as that and they and they absorb it as like a part of their emotional self and their self-worth and those types of things, which sometimes can cause them to bury their head in the sand longer than they should mm-hmm. because they're embarrassed to talk to somebody about it. Mm-hmm. And that becomes even more problematic because one of the greatest, I would say one of my greatest regrets in life is I've been very silent about a lot of things that I would need help on. And it just turns into years. Something that could have been resolved in weeks talking to the right people is now something going on years. And you only have so much bandwidth as an owner in any of these stages. And you're giving away portions of that bandwidth by not addressing objective things. And it just becomes a tremendous barrier to objectivity is that emotional attachment. And so that person can't come to you and be like, Kim, I only I only sold, I had four sales approaches at close to you know, I closed two package deals. I just like, what's, but if they're so embarrassed and they're dodging around it, they're just wasting time. And so Kim, I'm only closing at 50%, you know, and I want to be higher at 75. And then you say, well, how many absolute numbers? And then you can get into volume discussions. You can reassure them and say, Hey, 50% close rate. That's great. Especially when you're a new business owner, we just need to figure out what your problem is. Exactly. Yeah, your problem is four and not twelve. I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather you close four of twelve attempts than close two, you know, one of two, two of four. Like well, it's scared. that mindset shift too, because you go from a new clinician, which our only objective as a clinician is to, you know, to make a person feel better, not make them pay. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So that's what I would say is kind of the blind would be kind of the word of wisdom there is, is that emotional process, kind of removing yourself. From that. And I think some of that is just repetition of numbers and talking about those numbers. So, three tips for new practice owners. What are some takeaways that we can give these new practice owners now? Because, you know, we can help the ones that have been in business for a long time a little bit with advice, but these are new people going in words of advice that you feel like they should address now that they are just starting up their practice. I would say the numbers, find a system and way to track your numbers hold on to money and ensure what you're able to ensure. Okay, guys, write that down. I think that is great advice. Something I would add to that with holding on to money, which is very important. He's not saying not to use money for marketing. Yeah, no, you got to be able to create revenue. Part of that is inflow and outflow. What I'm saying is like, I'll talk to people who will have a good six months and they'll be like, where should I invest this money? And I'm like, I'm glad you had a great six months. It's been six months. How many years do you think you'll be in business? Years. Like sometimes what happens is people have these recency biases where they think, you know, times have been great for six months. So that must mean that it's going to be great forever. And I don't necessarily think it works that way. So when I say hold on to cash, 
And just because things are going well, doesn't mean immediately turn around and spend that and absorb that in non-productive ways. You know, especially with marketing, if you, every $20 you spend on marketing returns you a hundred, you keep putting $20 bills into that machine because it keeps printing your money. Exactly. Marketing is you have to allow and budget for the things that your business needs. So just because you're bringing in a certain type of income, which you're not used to bringing in because you have a practice, there are still business expenses that need to be utilized to grow more leads, close sale and build your practice. Yep. So that's where I would be on those bullet point advices. Awesome. Awesome. Will, I have to ask you, how have you, have you heard anything about the stretch mobility coach program yet? Have I? I mean, whatever I've seen you kind of post online lately and recently, but I'm open to hearing more if you're about to tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) So the cool thing about the Stretch Mobility Coach program is so the Stretch Method is a affiliate program for rehab professionals only. So you have to either have a license or you have to have graduated from an accredited program to become certified and become an affiliate with the method. And those rehab professionals that become affiliated, they get all the perks of affiliation, which is, you know, there's a lot that goes with it. I'm not going to go into that. But the cool part is, is traditionally rehab professionals have to go look for other certifications like they have to become a personal trainer or a Mm -hmm. CSCS or do things like that. And those people also have to go and get a personal training insurance policy. And then they have to do their personal trainer hat and then their PT hat. And they have to juggle the two and juggle business. This gives that entrepreneurial type rehab professional the ability to work as a stretch mobility coach with the credentials of a PT, OT or athletic trainer use all the clinical skill that they learned, all of everything that they have to work as a stretch mobility coach, sell stretch mobility coach services, and don't have to risk their license because they're not selling PT. And they don't have to go out and get a new insurance policy. Hmm. Yeah, so affiliation seems like kind of a, a way that people are headed. And it seems like it can be really smart in the right circumstances. Well, yeah, there's three types of business um, that these owners can go into. One is they can invent their business, visionary, you know, invent it. And I did it. And that is a long, expensive route. Years, years (laughs) and years and years. And then the second one is an affiliate ownership, which is a lot more cost effective and gives you things that you would not normally have already. And it's already created for you. So it gives you a lot of stuff that's created. And then the other one is a franchise, which is, we all know, as very expensive and they have certain rules that you have to follow. So I agree. The affiliate model is the way to go. Yeah, and that's great. And then how long has it been under this model? So I have had, I do TSM within the clinic and we have two stretch mobility coaches in there now. So I stepped away 2020, well, actually January of 2020. And then of course we all know March was COVID, right? Yeah. So I went into COVID with a full schedule and a wait list and then people knocking on my door because, you know, you can't do wellness. So Uh, (laughs) it was a good problem to have, but I then had to step away and think, how do I hire, train someone to be another stretch mobility coach to take this over? Because what PTA wants to do this or ATC, right? Yeah. 
And then after I hired my first one and it took three months to train on one-on-one, I thought I've got to make this more efficient. And then I had practice owners reaching out and going, hey, how do we get to add this to our practice to bring in wellness revenue too? So it's been a pretty cool process. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So lots of opportunity. There's a lot of lateral moves. You guys can go from PT and go into financial planning, go into that type (laughs) of step. You can go into, I talked to the non-clinical PT and she talked about writing and other options that people can go into that way. But if you're not looking to get out of clinical and you want to start your own business, this is another way. Well, and that's the thing. That's the thing is we need more avenues to be able to care for people in a way that we want. And sometimes the typical way isn't the way that resonates. Right. And I don't think everybody should necessarily start their own business. Like, you know, it's a little controversial on an entrepreneurial podcast, but sometimes you can expand your pod, you can expand your professional skill set, and you can care and treat more people with kind of a unique approach. And sometimes through the affiliate systems, at least the ones that I've seen, you're able to kind of flex a little bit of muscle without having to take on all the responsibility. Like, they're kind of borrowing, at least in your case that you're talking about now, the 20 plus years that you've been putting effort into establishing and growing and understanding these things. Affiliate kind of helps kind of shorten that path a little bit. Yeah. And it gives you already done for you stuff that otherwise you have to spend seven, eight years and a lot of time, money and sweat equity to do. So yeah, it's kind of the cool thing out there. So any last minute advice for any owners, people who want to go into a wellness business, Will? What what I would say is when you a couple of things when you feel like you can't do something that feeling typically that means it's a time when you should look outside of yourself and ask questions of other people and other professionals so I'd say that's one thing the second thing that I would say is that if you're experienced if things are feeling really great right now that's also a great time to talk to your professional team because you don't have the same stressors as when you are stressed. And some things can only be fixed or prepared and planned for when things are good. So I'd say that. So if things are great and you haven't talked to your professional team who's helping support you, especially your financial team, talk to them. If you're feeling like you can't do something and something feels impossible, start asking questions. And then the other thing that I would say is get second opinions of things that you're currently doing or that you feel you're doing because you evolve, stuff evolves, positions change. Because the big thing you want is to have confidence in what you're building. Love it. Great advice. So if anybody needs to reach out and they are ready to start financial planning, how would they reach out to you? Or who is that target customer you're looking for? I would say the typical people who I'm working with, like I'll work with lots of people because the license is capable of doing that. And I have um, advisor teams that I'm affiliated with who have specific targets who they like to work with. But I would say if you want to talk, Tony Maritato got sick and tired of handing me, handing out my contact information. So he put together financialphysio.com, which literally just connects to a call calendar link. So if you want to talk, just go to financialphysio.com and set it up. Otherwise, feel free to look me up on LinkedIn. I'm looking to connect and be more active through that because it's a nice, it's professional social media. But I would say the other way is you can always email me as well, william.butler at nm, like nancymichael.com. Those are kind of three ways that you could connect with me. If it's just to network, like just, hey, I don't know you, but I might need to talk to you in the future. I enjoy doing that. If it's, hey, I need a second opinion on stuff that I'm already doing, I'd love an 
outside set of eyes. Great. We can do that. Or if it's, I have no clue what the hell I'm doing and I feel that I should feel free to reach out. The most important thing is is to be prepared so that you can really capitalize on success and kind of sidestep tragedy. Love it. Great advice. Great words of wisdom here. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you did get some real tips today from Will and I, and you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody, and we'll see you on the other side. joining us today on the Rehab to Wellness Boss podcast, where you, a rehab professional, can start, build, and grow your very own successful wellness cash practice. If you're ready to level up and become a stretch mobility coach, then head on over to our website, www.thestretchmobilitycoach.com. This website will take you through the next steps needed to practice as a stretch mobility coach. Come on over. 